Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Ecce, an artist and art consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I interview artists, cultural producers, and funders about how art in public space happens and how to create more equitable and inclusive projects in public space. I also share my tips on how to commission art projects for your business, how I run my art consulting business, Distill Creative, and how I'm developing my own art practice. If you like what you hear, please leave a review and consider supporting this project on Patreon. I edit, produce, and basically do everything myself, so any support is really appreciated. If you're interested in artwork for your business or home, check out distillcreative.com. I hope you enjoy this episode. This week on First Coat, we have Mallory Roxana Nizam. Mallory is a cross-sector culture maker who loves cities and believes that we have the tools to make them more just and joyful. She specializes in public art, creative placemaking, keeping, knowing, organizational development, strategic planning, facilitation, and the public domain. Through her cross-sector practice, Justice and Joy, she engages stakeholders across sectors to de-silo the way we run cities and build new models of creative interdisciplinary collaboration. In this episode, we talk about using play and absurdity to create connections in public space, embedding artists into the process of city making, and how to use art and culture as a tool for transportation justice and equitable development. Here's our conversation. Welcome to First Coat. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to chat with you because we haven't caught up in a while and I want to hear all about all the things you're working on. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Hi, I'm Mallory Roxana Nazam. Um, I am a cross-sector creative consultant. It's a lot of C's. <laughs> um, yeah, I have a creative practice and then I, I advise people as a consultant, sort of have two arms of what I do. And how would you define art in public space? Yeah, I I mean, most of my work is in public space and has historically been as an uh, like a public artist, social practice artist, and also um, as a consultant who works in urban planning and policy. So I'm really always thinking about public space. And I would say that when I when I think of art and culture in the context of public space, a lot of that is about the meaning making that can happen in public space. So, you know, otherwise like public spaces are just these physical entities, their infrastructure, their materials, their points on a map, but what makes them meaningful, um, it's the culture of these spaces. It's, it's the creative expression of the folks who spend time there the folks who are invited in and then people who have like historically had relationships to those spaces and maybe even future in the future, the people who, who want to have relationships to those spaces, but don't yet. Do you have a specific memory of first experiencing art in public space? Mm, yes, I do. It was music. Um, how old was I? I was probably maybe as young as seven and an aunt of mine um, played hand drums and she would go every Sunday to this drumming circle. And I started going with her and it was just kind of an informal gathering of folks who 
played the drums, played hand drums. And it was a consistent group of people that I got to know. And I was the only kid mm-hmm. <laughs> was all adults. And then a bit of an audience that would circle around. Um, and if you know, St. Louis, which is my hometown, it was in the loop. And if you know, Nellie, I think he sings about the loop. So this is, <laughs> this, this is where I was like a, a heavily foot trafficked area of the city. And there aren't a ton of those in St. Louis. So it was a really activated space. And, you know, I, I guess that impression of just the in, like informal kind of gathering spaces around art um, and in this case music was really seemed really normal to me and I, I would imagine to a lot of children that's a very natural way to be but there were not a ton of those opportunities you know in like a mid-sized city in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. yeah especially as a child like it's awesome that your aunt took you Yeah. Yeah. She introduced me to, she also introduced me to poetry. I wrote my first poems with her. I have an, I have an uncle who introduced me to painting and drawing when I was young. Um, And I really took to all of, I took to all of those art forms a lot. And I, you know, it's like public schools offered technique, I think, but then having experiences that kind of like took the technique and recontextualized it and somewhere kind of surprising, like, you know, a, a street. And my, my uncle used to um, do like, um, like nature scenes. So we would go out in the woods at my grandparents' house. And I, I mean, I guess it's kind of a public it's kind of a private space, but it was a different context, you know, like outside of, um, you know, like an art and a studio or something. And Mm -hmm. I was interacting with the world and um, understanding it through drawing and painting. And he would teach me about plants and medicinal properties and different uses of plants. And then I would learn to paint and draw them in detail with him. Don't do as much of painting and drawing now, but I, that was a big part of my life when I was a kid. That's awesome. Good job, aunt and uncle. <laughs> now I'm an aunt and I'm like really into making music with my nephew. Um, that was his, one of his birthday presents for his first birthday. I got him like a few wooden instruments. I play my ukulele and sing with him and he like, I can see, I can almost see like his whole body is is reacting and connecting to music and the physical vibrations of it and I think kids take really naturally to rhythm and yeah it's really fun to kind of like notice these ways that young people respond in some intuitive way to a creative practice and then Mm -hmm. not forcefully but just kind of exposing them to more of it and seeing where they want to go with it. So I guess I'm continuing that tradition in some way with my nephew. Definitely. How did you first start doing work in public space? Well, maybe I've been doing it since I was around (laughs) that six or seven year age. I did 
I used to um, write and cast and direct plays in the neighborhood for the neighborhood. <laughs> so um, I was doing that when I was like six or seven. Mm -hmm. um, it had to be six or seven because I'm thinking of, yeah, where I was at that time and, and I was around that age. So I've been doing it since then, I would say. And I used to, um, I also used to sell my artworks door to door. <laughs> <laughs> and I still have some of them. It's like in the corner, it says 25 cents um, for a drawing. And I would just take them door to door and see if people wanted to buy them. Sometimes they did. Um, I made some like films, but I those weren't necessarily public, public space. But yeah, I, I did like public theater, I would say pretty young. And then when I be came into my adulthood, I I really made like a conscious um, I consciously moved into what I understood to be like a public art practice formally when I moved back to the States after living in Spain. And I was really like experiencing a reverse culture shock of the differences in how people used public space here. Mm -hmm. And for, for folks who are not super familiar with those differences, speaking really, really broadly, um, as I felt like in the city that I was living in, in Spain, that there was a much more, a lot, just more life happened in public space. Like I interacted with strangers a lot more frequently than I would here. People were more willing to talk to me if they didn't know me. Um, there was a lot of music. There were a lot of artisans selling wares informally um there were a lot of festivals there were it was just like a lot of formal and informal art and culture in public space and interaction um, as a result of it mm -hmm. and when i came back to the states i i was just like wait this isn't happening here <laughs> like people are i seriously felt like people were just like constantly anxious and fearful in public space. They were afraid to interact with anybody. It was, I remember how quiet it was on the bus. It was so quiet. And granted this was in St. Louis, I came back. So in other cities, it's probably not quite the same but there's still, I think some cultural differences between the US and, and Europe uh, or Spain in particular, even if you're in New York on the bus. But I digress. Um, it was so quiet. I was like, what? Why are this is such an amazing opportunity to interact with people that I maybe wouldn't see in another context? Like, this is a rich social opportunity. And as a social practice artist, I just started to think, like, this is what I need. This is really like what I'm curious about and what I want to push us to shift. So, then I created a really formal public art practice to disrupt that kind of fear and isolation in public spaces and to catalyze interactions between strangers. I used play and um, abs absurdity, which isn't necessarily a artistic form, but sort of like a maybe a nod to 
surrealism or surrealist performance because my work is performance oriented um, in a way to really like bring people to kind of horizontally to a common place where everything is not what you expect it to be. All the rules kind of break down in these settings of play and absurdity and it forces people to be a lot more present and disarmed with each other. And I saw some really amazing like little transformations in people in some of the performance work that my collective and I were doing right after I got back from Spain. Are you an artist? Submit your portfolio at distillcreative.com slash artist. You'll get on our distill directory, our artist database, and be considered for upcoming art commissions. And how did you start doing consulting in this type of like, how did you move from doing more of like being the performer in this in mm-hmm. your social art practice and in doing all kinds of different projects in this realm? Yeah, I guess. OK, I'm thinking there are two two ways that happened. One is. Um, that. I, I actually think that a lot of my skills as a in performance training um, helped me to function as a facilitator. And in a lot of community practice and in collaborative spaces, um, there's often a need for someone who can like bring different parties together to talk about difficult things. And I had a lot of training that I could pull from actually in, in like my creative practice to offer different opportunities for people to tap in, to like express themselves, um, to share things that might be difficult, to get out of their comfort zone. Even just like improv training um, helps people really be present in the moment and kind of like stop holding back from political niceties or, you know, doubting yourself. And so I started to bring some of those tools into rooms and it really, really started to lead me into a role of facilitating difficult conversations, especially in community contexts um, and often like between community members or between the institutions doing projects with local communities where there's distrust. So I would, so I would say like those tool, those artistic tools of performance have have brought me into a consulting practice where I can, I work as a facilitator. And then also I would say I made this movement from focusing on my creative practice to working as a, like a creative problem solver and a creative strategist around the time that um, Mike Brown was murdered in St. Louis or in, in Ferguson I was living in St. Louis at the time, and it was a it was a big part of my world as as an activist, as a person of color, as an artist, and as just a community member living in in the same area. Um, and what shifted for me is I was doing what I thought was really powerful artwork. I, like I personally felt that my work was meaningful and the messages that were being conveyed were powerful. The artistic quality was high. And then, you know, I was also 
getting a stamp of approval saying, yes, this work is good from, you know, entities that were granting, granting me, um, you know, funding or collectors that were collecting the work. So the work was good, right? Okay. It was powerful work, but I was really frustrated with the fact that my work wants to advance social good to advance justice. And I just didn't feel like the work was doing that. I was looking at data and seeing like, okay, same number of people are dying from being killed by police. Like the same number of people are being stopped unnecessarily by, by police. So specifically looking at those measurements of policing in my community, it's like, okay, the artwork is great, but what's changing, you know? So then I started to think, okay, how can I actually get involved in really in that tangible change. Like I want to see policy change. I want to, I want to be at the table where we're designing some of the ways our cities are structured and set up. And I come from a city that's very geographically segregated. So for me, that like design of space really reinforces inequity. Um, so I was thinking also very like physically and in infrastructurally about justice. Um, and yeah, so then I started to become more involved um, in urban planning and community development work. I moved to DC, which is where we met, um, was working with Smart Growth America and Transportation for America and got invited to join a new arts and culture team to, to integrate arts and culture as a tool to integrate well, I already said integrate. <laughs> integrate arts and culture as a tool to further transportation justice and equitable community development. Historically, I mean, artists have kind of been invited into those spaces, but not necessarily as like central um, problem-solving partners. They they've been invited in kind of at the end of a project, um, but I really was working to bring them in at the beginning. And that's what I get really excited about is, is integrating artists, embedding them into processes because I think they bring a very different perspective that's usually at its best, quite curious and quite humble. Like I think that there's a power in, that artists can bring of assuming that they don't really know and that they're, they're on a journey to try to understand I think that is maybe another way that we can talk about art is it's it's that meaning making. It's like, what's going on here? What am I noticing and sensing about this place? What are the dynamics? What happened before? What do people want? It's like, the, those are all questions. And I guess that's also central to what artists are bringing into these non-art spaces um, is like just not being afraid to ask questions to do things differently yeah I think also what you were talking about earlier to to be okay with being uncomfortable and to make people feel uncomfortable but in a respectful way and in a way that actually brings people together and crosses sectors as opposed to mm -hmm. you know pissing someone off and dividing segments because I think right now we're seeing like the overlapping of so many different things and it's it's hard to deal with if you're just stuck in your lane and you're not able to have those conversations or even 
communicate with another person in a meaningful way. You know, you just hit on something. I, the other day I was, I was kind of coming back to this feeling that actually one of the, one of the things that can fuel artists is discord and discomfort. Like it's actually a point of creative departure uh, instead of something to shy away from, which I think other professions have been trained that that's like, that's a bad thing. We don't want to go there. If that comes up, we're, we're doing a bad job, mm-hmm. but I would say that artists are actually trained to lean into it and that that can really fuel what you're doing. And if you apply that principle, so that maybe that's an example of a lot of how I work, I will take that principle of, of artistic practice and I will say, okay, engineers working on this project or, you know, designers and architects, what if we lean into the discomfort of the community asking for something that we think is ugly? Mm-hmm. Why do we think it's ugly? What are our cultural assumptions of beauty? You know, what are we bringing in to the project without even knowing? And, and then leaning into that discomfort allows you to open up to all sorts of things. The project's probably going to be totally different than you expected, but also actually serve, better serve um, the people who are in the place that are going to use it or who have some stake in it. How do you define cultural equity? That's a really big question. <laughs> I There's so many different components that I would consider because I, when I think about cultural equity, I'm like, my brain's already starting to think of it in terms of um, how do I document and kind of show progress on moving from inequity to equity. Some might call that measurement. (laughs) Um, I'm going to say document progress (laughs) instead of measurement, because I don't know, sometimes that word can bring up feelings for me, but in, in, cultural equity in public art. I would I would hope that that means that there is accurate representation um, in who the artists are um, that are that are being displayed in public space or that are invited to to work or have their work protected and funded in public space. And when I say accurate representation, I mean, like, I want to know who actually lives there. Like, <laughs> I, I want to look at the census track and I want to know who has historically lived there. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about the present. And I would say, like, a lot of my, I want to nod to the friends of mine who have Indigenous roots that have really pushed for me to learn um, my own relationship to to time and to like history, because if we just stick to census data, right, we're only looking at like who's there right now, but there are a lot of people who have relationship to to places that don't live there right now for whatever reason, displacement or, you know, just need financial need or um, climate change, lots of different reasons, opportunities elsewhere. But so, yeah, who who is represented as an artist? And we have to look at kind of a whole time scale past to present. And then I also think about 
part of equity is what kind of work is being shared. So not just who's there, but like, are we really representing artistic dis disciplines well? Are we representing different kinds of narratives, perspectives, and stories? Um, because if we have, you know, if we're like, okay, we have this great array of like different um, races of artists that are, that are really reflect the community, but everybody is practicing in one particular um, medium, you know, you're missing out on um, folks who are trained in maybe like not as commonly practiced mediums or mediums that are handed down through a cultural lineage that are not recognized through mainstream public art frameworks. Um, I also think about placement of public art as part of the cultural equity framework. So um, to simply put it, like it, the artwork shouldn't always go in wealthy areas. And there have been problems with that in, the, in many cities and many public art plans. Um, and also they shouldn't go in places that people don't want them. Uh, there are also lots of stories of public art being in spaces that really just don't work for people. Um, but somebody wanted to put it there who had the power to do so. And some of those get removed. So you also might be wasting your time. <laughs> um, also, who selects artworks? Um, you know, who gets to serve on juries? Is that a real representation of who's there? Are you accounting for historic inequity um, when you're choosing people for a jury process or a panel. And then lastly, I would say the process itself of that whole process of finding spaces, finding artists, even cur curators, selection panels, and the way that community is engaged throughout the process, that, that the whole process itself needs to be done through equitable practice and have that as a North Star throughout the whole run. I think that was a really good list. It sounds <laughs> exhausting, but it's like, you can't really not do any of those things and consider it equitable. Yeah, and it, is, it is a long list, but, <laughs> but, but like, like the more we do it, the more it won't feel like a long list. Right, and so many of these things like seem like no brainers, but when you look at projects, usually none of them are followed. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's insane. Um, especially if you start looking at privately funded projects, which sure they're privately funded, but how do people get so much money, you know, like tax breaks yeah. and the city bringing them into the space to begin with. And, you know, wealth is inequitable. So, when you start thinking about it that way, it's like every everything that's funded should be equitable, um, whether or not it's in public space. Um, can you talk about your work with the Brickline Greenway? Yeah, I was on a design team that got selected to, to set the design for the Greenway. Um, and it was, I think it's relatively uncommon for artists to be on, to be informing the design. Like I, in other models that I have seen, artists are brought in like specifically to do art things mm -hmm. uh, for, for greenways or urban trails. Um, and we did also do, did that, but 
there were three of us and we we also were invited to actually like inform the design like where is it is the greenway going to go how do we decide where it goes first second third what are those dynamics like what does even um the pavement look like you know real design questions um and I respect the difference between designers and artists. And I think, you know, that's something I, I don't want to suggest that like artists are, should be doing what designers are doing, but I do think because they are different disciplines that there's a lot, there's an important crossover that can happen, especially in the early part of a process. Um, for example, to consider like, even if we just talk about pavement, because I, as I mentioned earlier, thinking about like art, public art is meaning making in these spaces. How do we use that lens of meaning making to think about what the pavement looks like? Um, so like, are there opportunities to, for, for us to kind of uncover story and history through the choice of material? Are there symbols and emblems embedded in on the ground are there do people get to submit things that are integrated into the groundwork itself so these this is kind of the way that we start to blend art and design where the designers might be saying like this really this works really this material works really well for the climate we have here and you know it emulates the natural landscape um, the, the color tones in the landscape, the geometry of the landscape, et cetera. And then we might, the artist team might come in and say, yeah. And then what if we recognize that like the neighborhood we're going through here was redlined and how do we bring that into the way that we're thinking about actually even designing the pavement or where the trail goes. So, um, that's, I guess, like a little snapshot into how the artist team worked with the on a design team to create a greenway. And, and then there are some other projects. Um, there's a, a, a memorial or a monument that um, Damon Davis, who's on our, on our team, is really leading. And that's to commemorate um, Mill Creek Valley, which is a historic really thriving black neighborhood in St. Louis that was just um, decimated by the um, imposition of a highway build, which is an, not an uncommon story, but um, maybe what's uncommon is to talk about it and to spend like a lot of time, energy, and money to create artworks that allow people to engage in that history. And especially for, I mean, we are, this is such a racially divided city. I don't have the statistics, but like the, there's this stark line called the Del Mar divide that divides the north side of the city, the south side of the city. And the like, the median home incomes are just so dramatically different on across that line. Um, the racial makeup is so dramatically different. The median income is so dramatically different. Um, and that you can look at 
the history of disinvestment in the north side and the history of redlining and see how like very clearly policy racist policy have has perpetuated the racial inequities and racial injustice in this city so with that context to have a greenway project that goes through i don't even i think it's like 20 something neighborhoods i don't know what number we're at now but a lot of neighborhoods that goes across this dividing line and that is now incorporating into it a monument to a redlined neighborhood is a big deal for this city because we are a city that doesn't want to talk about racism again we're not alone in that but we're a city that doesn't want to talk about racism that was on a world stage that featured how violent our racism is and we still don't want to deal with it so this these artistic interventions this greenway the memorial project is one of the ways that we hope to create a site and a space to to say like this this is our true true history our true identity and we want you to engage with it and we want to create a space where we think a lot of different people can come together and be with this history and i think it's also it requires a certain level of skillfulness to be able to create sites that allow for people to interact in a lot of different ways with something that might be challenging. Um, I was just talking about this, that uh, I really don't enjoy prescriptive public space where it's like, you come here and you like it's everything is designed for you to be in one way to interact with the work, the artwork and with people in one way that still feels like oppression to me. I want a public space that offers me options that recognizes that like we live in a dynamic multicultural multiracial democracy. And people are going to use this space in a lot of different ways. And when I create the space and when I bring in the artworks, I am thinking of that and I am building from that up to the actual project. Um, and I guess the Greenway is um, at its best trying to do that. Um, I'm less involved in it right now than I was in the past, but I think um, when I was involved in it in the past, that was the aspiration. Can you talk a little bit about how you think artists and cultural producers can work with government? Sure, I, I believe that the simplest way to put it is that artists are really adept creative problem solvers. Government solves problems. <laughs> so <laughs> what if they solve problems more creatively and with a bit more soul, um, that's the core of it for me. I, I often hear and also believe that artists are, okay, let me, let me just say, government clearly has a fractured relationship with community, pretty much all communities. 
but there's a spectrum <laughs> like, you know, the more marginalized the community is typically the more fractured the relationship is there's distrust and there's a lot of reason to have that distrust. There have been some successful collaborations where artists have been embedded inside of government and kind of been like at the helm of work and been able to start to heal some of the relationship and the bonds with community. Um, again, I was just talking about this with someone. And while I do believe that that's possible, like there is the, the skillfulness of some kinds of artistic practitioners that have this ability to offer like the social intelligence and cultural awareness um, that I unfortunately find uncommon in government work. Yet I also get quite, there's a yellow light for me that comes up when we think that artists can heal government <laughs> or that artists can be a surrogate, the good, the good surrogate of government. Uh, that I think that the what I want to see is that deeper work that artists can do to help government from the inside out, actually help with the cultural shift inside of the institution that then should result in better community relationships and a different way, a different practice of engaging with community. Um, so it's, it's, sort of similar to me as the same approach as like bottom up community work. Um, it's kind of bottom up. It's almost like an organizational change methodology where it's like you, you really change the folks on the team and the culture of the team to change how the team works outside of itself and engages with any other entity outside of government. And I, I have seen that happen. Um, I will say like, the artist in residence, Marcus Young, who's based in the Twin Cities area, he was in residence uh, with the city of St. Paul for a number of years. And then more recently was the uh, was the Creative Vitality Fellow, something like that. Um, he was in residence with the Minnesota Department of Transportation. So it's at the state level. It was the first of two state level artists in residence programs inside of state government. And he will like, he talks a lot about how the most profound change that he has seen in all of his residencies inside of government bodies has been seeing staff shift and seeing culture shift. And that's really what he's most focused on as an artist in residence. And um, I think that that is the long, slow work it takes a lot more time, but I think that's also where some of the most profound results can be from bringing artists and cultural producers into government. I would like to see it at every level, the local to the federal. And I would like to see an artist in every department and every agency. <laughs> and I appreciate those that are taking the risk to prototype these. Um, I believe that we need to be thinking of them not as one-off, but as the new normal 
we need to be funding them as such. We need to be budgeting them as such. And we need to be bringing people onto teams to support building them. That's one of the projects I'm working on right now with um, Amanda Lovely, who was um, the city artist in residence at the city of St. Paul for seven or so years and now works um, for uh, parks department for the county, I think. And then um, Johanna Taylor, who's a researcher and um, academic at ASU. And the three of us are working to create what we're calling CARE Lab, C-A-I-R Lab, which stands for Civic Artisan Residence. That is um, a project that will allow us to support governments that are curious about setting these programs up. We'll provide them with training, with coaching, and we'll also um, be doing public speaking if, if it's helpful for us to sing the praises of these programs and share the research that we've been doing. So this is a big passion area of mine. And one of the, one of the ways that I think this is different from a lot of the other things that I touch is I think like there's art, there's art that, um, there's powerful art that points to a thing. So it's like, um, I would say a lot of my work that came out of Ferguson was, was work that was pointing at something and was saying, this thing needs to change. This thing over here um, is wrong. This thing over here is right. <laughs> this thing over here is beautiful. This thing over here is ugly. It's pointing to the thing. And then there's a way of approaching art that it really is the thing. So the, so the artist saying, artists can reform government. Well, I'm not going to create a thing that points to that. I'm going to, I'm going to do that. The artwork is the reform of government. Um, and it's kind of like a weird brain thing to get there, but that's really what I'm excited about right now. Yeah. I really resonate with that. Cause that's kind of how I feel like I'm working with the private sector. Like part of my art is trying to get them to understand their responsibilities and being equitable in how they fund projects. And just because it's private funding, just because it might be in a private space doesn't mean they can skirt away from that. And they have really large budgets often. And so figuring that out of like, we have to be doing that work. Otherwise, it just won't change. It'll still be the same people getting the same funding, doing maybe different work that points at the problem or the solution, but isn't actually changing. It's like, it's like preaching to the choir work, like, and the people who yeah. like it, like it. And I, I think I see that a lot with all of the Black Lives Matter protests too. Like, mm. and I'm sure you've seen it too. It's like the Instagram post about the thing by like a white woman artist in Canada. It's just like, it's not that they can't, you know, it's not that they can't support the movement. It's not that they can't even, you know, make money off of their artwork about it necessarily. It's just that all the attention still goes to the same people and mm -hmm. and that isn't really solving the problems like even changing who the attention goes to isn't necessarily solving solving the problem so even just having people of color artists isn't necessarily solving the problems too and so it's like there's like baby steps and then like the larger infrastructure change and it's really exciting that you and others are like working like we're all like little crickets like trying to do the work while also like 
getting paid because <laughs> because I, I feel like people don't want to do the work too it's like not you know they say they do or they might want to and then it like when it comes down to it it is long and hard and um very tiring <laughs> yeah it's tiring it's yeah it's a lot of work and I and I the crickets metaphor I am like everyone has a different entry point you know into this whole ecosystem of change and I just want to affirm that the way that I'm working is just where I think I'm called to be and I see other people called to other places and we need them there like we need people to be just leaning into what they're call, called to do as as part of this whole constellation mm-hmm. of a better world Are you a real estate developer looking for a unique amenity for your site? Get our free guide, 10 Tips for Commissioning a Site-Specific Artwork, at our website, distillcreative.com. I wonder how you've thought about basically training government workers to think like artists or to just be more creative as opposed to bringing in someone else all the time. Because that was something I saw when I worked at Vornado in real estate. It's like if you actually can inspire a different way of thinking among all of the people and it you know it starts with individuals then you don't need another entity to come in whether that's a consultant or a single person mm-hmm. or whatever you can just create this and obviously i want more artists to get paid to do things so that's always good but how have you thought about the actual like inspiring change among people who already work in government that is so key. There's this organizing principle um, in like community organizing, political organizing. That's about like you kind of you work yourself out of a job. That's really the goal. You're creating the capacity for people to do the thing that they don't quite yet have the capacity to do. So if you work in the realm of creativity, then your work is to cultivate the creative capacity of whomever you're working with um, and ultimately work yourself out of needing to be there. Asterisk, artists do have specialty in their artistic craft that will always be, you know, unique to artists. I will say I have seen that transformation in some of the teams that I've worked with, with individual people that it's almost, this is going to be really abstract, but it's almost like I see a loosening in within them. Like uh, if they were a solid form, they're like the molecules have just sort of loosened up a little bit and there may be more like a gas or a liquid or something. Like they're just, the rigidity is is lessened. And so that offers that offers them like a window into their own curiosity and into questioning the way that they're doing things. Um, One really literal thing I've seen be successful is to actually transform physically the workspace to have have things that just engender creativity and spark ideas and make you like feel alive in the physical space. So like I've been in some workspaces where there's a rotating, exhibition in the hallway or they bring uh the the whole team gets to contribute ideas to like a new mural that's going to be in the office that everyone feels that they like had a say in and they feel 
this this pride over um i i've even done like little like poetry things in offices and um especially if people are are really directly engaged in it and it's not just like plop it and not you know just plop it down there that doesn't work the best but i i do think that that is one very specific way that you can start to bring more creativity into um, a team. And yeah, I guess I, I, I can just say that like, I saw it happen in um, actually all of the non-arts teams that I've been a part of. And I've also seen people connect to their own creative practice. Like if someone is in more of an office job situation, but has a, like plays a saxophone or something, I've seen that bringing like constantly being in an environment where you have someone asking them about arts and culture in their housing project, that they start to talk to me more about playing the saxophone and why the saxophone is meaningful to them. And when they started playing it and like, Hey, do you want to check out this, this album I made when I was 16? And like the most people are creative. And I think just like having that, that, another creative practitioner around you can also just ignite that, that you probably already have in yourself. And if you don't have it, then I do think that some of these really simple tools, like placing art inside of working environments, um, it's probably not super measurable, but I definitely see it changing the way people are just curious and creative. Um, I think you can also infuse it into meetings totally rethinking meetings is a whole nother thing that we don't have time to talk about, but um, it's another like really, really tangible way. You can bring, really bring we could do so in. many more follow-up conversations about these things. Cause these are like, this is like my, what I think about all the time. And it's, it's like, you've seen so many of these things happen also in, in real time. Like it's not imaginary. It actually works. So yeah. Um, is there anything that's inspiring you right now? Any books you're reading? Anything you're listening to? You, listening oh. to? Hmm. This is very simple, but just so much of my creativity comes from just public space and being in community and the fact that we've opened back up in a lot of places due to vaccinations. That is igniting my creativity again so just like vaccinations are making are inspiring me <laughs> um uh i was watching the small axe series for a while um and that was i think it's is it alexander mcqueen am i saying that right or is that a different mcqueen no that's the fashion designer steve mcqueen <laughs> <laughs> alexander mcqueen is inspiring too i guess but um McQueen, the filmmakers, small act series has been such a beautiful blend of like music and cinematography and storytelling. And um, it features like different corners of the black community in London. And it, and it's, to me, it's one of the ways that artists reveal that, um, the ways in which we tend to approach minority communities is monolithic. And this series is telling all of these dynamic stories from all these different like, 
curves and corners and crevices of a very dynamic community of people of African descent in London. So that's been really cool. Um, I've been reading a lot of um, poetry. Ada Limon inspires me. Um, women of color poets and specifically her work. Yeah, I'll leave, the, I'll leave those. Well, I'll share links to everything that we talked about and everything that's inspiring you in the show notes so people can take a look. Thank you so much for sharing and thank you for doing this interview. It was so nice to talk to you more about this. I feel like we've had so many conversations about these things, but it's so nice to hear, especially about the government work and how how your practice has shifted, but is still very much an art practice. And that's it's just I'm excited for people to hear this because I think people think of artists and they think of like one very specific thing, um, even when they're funding it. And so just understanding that it's it's not like always paint on canvas <laughs> it can be lots of different things. So. Yeah. It could be so many things. And I think we're going to keep refining and redefining that forever. Mm -hmm. I have a, there's one artist, Damon Davis, that I mentioned that I just really look up to and have had the privilege of working with that he calls himself a post-disciplinary artist. <laughs> so I'm like, there's like interdisciplinary, there's multidisciplinary, there's transdisciplinary, there's post-disciplinary. I mean, we're just going to keep <laughs> refining and yeah just like re redefining what the artistic practice is and then what that means to collaborate in different spaces i mean it's just kind of a forever changing thing which is a lot of what's fun about it thank you so much and yeah go team yellow thanks for listening to this episode of first coat if you like this podcast please leave a review make sure to subscribe to the first coat podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com.